Welcome to Artwork Play Podcast. It's a podcast about art, work, and play. So I just wanted to share this hot tip that I got the other day. Um, so after we are presenting... Where were we presenting? We are presenting at Ryerson University's um, School of Social Works event called VR as Empathy Machine. And we are presenting our, our project, our VR project resource, which... Um, is a documentary, uh, VR documentary about precarious workers, specifically uh, frontline workers in Toronto. And after presenting among um, some other uh, other VR developers, we had we were handed a slip of paper uh, with a recommendation of some uh, future future reading from a professor, uh, and it was uh, Simulations and Simulacra by Jean Baudrillard. And I was, yeah, I, the, the, very it was just a piece of paper that said uh, simulations and simulacra on it. Yeah. And hot tip, right? Yeah. Very hot tip. I was a little embarrassed. Um, I definitely tried not to laugh because I felt like, oh no, what, what did I say today that made it sound <laughs> like I have not read that book and assigned it on a syllabus, but like, oh, well, <laughs> next try. <laughs> next. Yes. It's very embarrassing for us um, that we to seem like somebody who should have read simulations and simulacra. No, who hasn't who read. Has not. Who skipped their but, yeah. survey level postmodernist theory class. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's a, th- I guess it's, if you haven't thought of VR before or haven't encountered it very much. It would make sense. Like, yeah, it's yeah. an exciting thing to think of VR through. Um, but I feel like we were kind of like, jumping to those conclusions. Like I felt like the other people that we were and no shade, but I felt like the people that we were presenting with were like, it's so real. And like the technology, like we can capture things forever and we can get closer to it. And it's, it's more emerged or submerged. And I feel like we were saying like, it's like, I mean, it's a medium first of all. So there's an inevitably a layer of representation. And then like at a philosophical level, who takes the real to be real? Well, I think uh, just like everything else, we could uh, turn back to uh, the New Testament for like the I don't for, for the information we're looking for, and so the the sim, simulacra and simulations, or the essay processions of simulacra uh, opens with the simulacrum is never that which conceals the truth; it is the truth which conceals that there is none. The simulacrum is true, and that's from Ecclesiastes. What was what context is that said in in Ecclesia? <laughs> what, what is it? I forget that book. Is it it's is it revealed text or is it letters? I guess that usually it says like when it's letters, so it's revealed. That's a thing we should know. <laughs> revealed by God. <laughs> yeah, that's what revealed means. Um, but that that quote does uh, speak it pretty well. Um, the, the the reveal revealing of the fact that there is no truth. The truth <laughs> it is the truth which conceals that there is none. Um, maybe that reflects how we feel about. Well, yeah. So one position about VR is that uh, it is a more realistic, the most realistic medium that has ever been created by humans. Um, therefore, thus the, the the name itself. Except for theater. 
<laughs> no, because the- theater you need all this like artifice no, and props. No, the props are like <laughs> you have to suspend your disbelief. But VR is so real that you don't have to suspend your disbelief at all when you're using it because you can you can't tell if you're using VR. It's it's so real. That's the dream. That's true. I love that. Okay, because there's like continental thought and there's um, analytical philosophy. And in analytical philosophy, Baudrillard is seen as kind of like a crank, and he's a very compelling crank. But he, he's 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 viewed as like he's kind of like I put him in my mind with like Zizek or Berardi, where like they're so rhetorically elevated, um, and they and they drag you in. But I I love the idea that this is kind of I wonder what he pictures. First of all, there's a sort of orthodoxy, like an empirical, uh, like an imperious orthodoxy he presents, and then it's like. And he's like, is the cat going to be like high and her mind melting as she reads this? Or is she like weeping to herself that she her, has now been able to encounter? This? Are you talking about what the person who the handed that thing <laughs> is thinking? <laughs> I wonder, yeah, I guess that it would further our own thoughts. Our practice. Um, so to read a little bit more We'd from finally it. get the language that we were clearly lacking. Right. <laughs> I'll just read the first. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's where why it's embarrassing for us <laughs> that there's always it's like the idea that there is some vocabulary that was absent from our presentation. Uh, uh, but I'll re- I'll read the first uh, chapter in a little bit or not chapter paragraph in a little bit. If we were able to take as the finest allegory of simulation, the Borges tale where the cartographers of the empire draw up a map so detailed that it ends up exactly covering the territory territory, but where the decline of the empire sees this map become frayed and finally ruined a few shreds still discernible in the deserts, the metaphysical beauty of this ruined abstraction bearing witness to an imperial pride and rotting like a carcass returning to the substance of the soil rather as an aging double ends up being confused with the real thing then this fable has come full circle for us and now is nothing but the dis- and now has nothing but the discrete charm of a second order simulacrum abstraction today is no longer that of the map the double the mirror or the concept simulation is no longer that of a territory, a referential being, or a substance. It is the generation by models of a real without origin or reality, a hyper-real. The territory no longer precedes the map, nor does it survive it. Henceforth, it is the map that precedes the territory, the precession of simulacra. It is the map that engenders the territory, and if we were to revive the fable today, it would be the territory whose shreds are slowly rotting across the map. It is the real and not the map whose vestiges subsist here and there in the deserts, which are no longer those of the empire, but our own. The desert of the real itself. My favorite part is um, when it says processions of simulacra, which is the name of the essay, it's uh, emboldened and all in caps, which I think is a great practice when you're like when they say the name of the film in a film. (laughs) But also that like elevates the crank status to me, (laughs) like when you're walking around and somebody like tries to sell you their manifesto that they printed at, you know, Kinko's. Fair enough. There's the... Ariel Black. Yeah. (laughs) What is, uh, what do you think he means by discrete charm of second order simulacra? Because he mentions that again, he says a little further on, um, it is no longer a question of either maps or territory. Something has disappeared. The sovereign difference between them that was the abstraction's charm. 
what do you think abstract so simulation it like simulation is when it's uh modeling a thing it's representing a thing yeah and then simulacra is when the thing has no referent yeah I think it's sort of, I think that's how I, I think I was taught it at school, but I think um, both words can sort of mean the same thing. Like I think sure. they used, I think simulacra was used in the past without it being, like they say simulacra in, in ecclesiastes, ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I don't know if they meant a simulation that has no referent. When no, they were using no, it. no, no. I mean, he, but he's establishing his. Theory. That's what Baudrillard means. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. So yeah, so the simulacrum is the the uh, simulation that has lost the 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 sovereign something has disappeared. The sovereign distance difference between them that was the abstraction's charm. Right. That is lost because the difference is lost when we can't take the VR headsets off anymore. <laughs> well, VR, so VR will lose its uh, its quaint novelty and charm at that point. <laughs> and I think that was, I mean, that was certainly our position at the um, at the event that we were just at, which was called, yeah, as I mentioned before, it was called VR's Empathy Machine, and it was really um, it, it was introducing this concept to uh, like a non like to a non-computer developer specialized like audience made up of um, students and professors at the School of Social Work at Ryerson University. So as students and professors of social work, they are really interested in this notion that can't, is, is VR this empathy machine? Is this something that can produce a effect in uh, their audience and, um, and, it, and they had amassed sort of a, a variety of different uh, VR developers from like the sides of there was some industry people, um, documentary filmmakers, uh, academics, um, and then sort of us as like these artists who as well who had been working in it. Um, so styled artists because I think the other, I, <laughs> I know, but I was doing that in my head too. Right? Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh well, maybe we just like are more willing to like puncture the received idea of reality because we're artists. But then everybody was referring to themselves as artists. Oh, absolutely. So. Yeah. And every, yeah, I mean, in that case, everyone really is an artist. They're all doing sort of this sort of exploration work. I mm -hmm. mean, other than the in industry people, I suppose they, who have more, who. Doing, uh, doing mean, fundamental research yeah. in human perception yeah. in, in that sense. Yeah. Their work was all, everyone's work was very experimental. So mm -hmm. I think that in that context, everyone is very much an artist. Am but, I just cutting the industry people out because I'm yeah. like, well, they're getting paid. I did that in my head too. <laughs> they have money. <laughs> um, it makes me think of um, the Alan Warburton video where he goes over. That's such the, a good video. We the, should link that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, when he sort of like, describes the landscape of like post cinematic effect or whatever he yeah. calls it the landscape of like basically a 3d computer generated image art and one of the categories he sort of talks about is like the studio that can afford the super insane high budget and so this the um the studio that we met at this talk they're called occupied we can also we will link to them as well um they were producing a LIDAR and photogrammetry scanned uh, sort of um, interactive navigation of Jerusalem that was just like, 
Specifically, it, sites of holy cities. Yeah, ho- like spe- yeah, specific holy sites within Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and and um, insanely detailed in the degree of the like three D modeling and rendering. Yeah, yeah, hyper real. Hyper well, but but hyper reality as Borges talks about it. There's like the pedestrian hyper real, which is like, oh, that's so real, dude. It's hyper real. And but Borges close. <laughs> exactly. Uh Borges is talking about hyper real as being like the Baudrillard. simulacrum. Yeah, what did I say? Borges. Borges. Baudrillard. Which was the story. Yeah. Uh, uh, his hyper reality is the simulacra, like the the simulation but, that has no referent. But you can hear him doing that work. That has no reality. <laughs> the fellow who was talking, both of them, uh, you could hear them doing that work when they they would be like, yeah, like we're just going to tour the world and capture all these cities so they're not mm-hmm. lost. And so confusing the representation mm-hmm. with the thing, it's like they that the project is attempting that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And it and it does and it produces a new artifact, and that artifact is hyper real in the pedestrian way, if you want. But it's it's a hyper real object in the Baudrillard sense as well. Yeah, it certainly will be once like the sea levels rise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I guess it is pretty literally doing what just the first paragraphs of this uh, of of this text is talking about, like building a model of a reel which is quickly disintegrating <laughs> yeah they're doing the more straight out straight up borges thing i mean to this guy who offered cat the book in the end there is something there there, there is a shorthand for what we were clamoring to talk about yes. in the in our unprepared talk we should shut out ken moffat yeah, uh, the Jack Layton chair at Ryerson for putting. Ken it Moffat didn't give us the book, but uh, no, <laughs> no, our book tip. <laughs> he put on the event that we were mm-hmm. that we are showing, uh, resourced, which is uh, currently showing on our Twitch stream, and we're going to do a playthrough in a little while, as well as uh, talk about it a bit more. Probably. And if you want to see it, you can come out to Workman Arts. At, well, TMAC as part of Workman Arts, uh, October tenth to the twentieth. Yeah, the openings the. No, 10th, 10th, it's just the 10th to the 12th. 10th to the 12th. Yeah, just the weekend. The 13th maybe is a Sunday. When they had me do the little social media video, they let me say the 20th. Okay, cool. Great. Well, it's in, right? It's in, it's, it's been cemented into a simulacra. So it's true. <laughs> the other part, and the other part about this text that I wanted to hone in on is the desert of the real itself. And just to bring up my favorite part of the matrix when. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Welcome to the desert of the real. Um, Neo is first in their sort of like training system um, with Morpheus, like looking at the guns and, and they're about to try Kung Fu for, for the first time. And <laughs> Morpheus is explaining to him the history of how they the Matrix was created by the robots um, after the Earth 
after the humans blocked out the sun and the earth became this apocalyptic wasteland. And so they Morpheus like turns on some sort of like 360 video that surrounds them. <laughs> and they're all of a sudden in that apocalypse They're or they're sitting in, in like, yeah, they're, they're in that apocalypse wasteland. And Morpheus says, welcome to the desert of the real, which is the most explicit shout out to uh, Baudrillard in the matrix. Uh, but hilariously, He's saying he's using it in sort of pedestrian sense, but also it's sort of correct because they are inside a simulation of the real thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he literally means welcome to the reality, which is like a desert. Right. <laughs> this, I mean, this is precisely what I, why I find this. is This is why I file Baudrillard with Zizek and Berardi, because there are these poetic turns of phrase. And I guess they evolve out of the translations in a lot of case, mm. a lot of the cases. But uh, uh, you mentioned the desert of the real. I like the anorexic ruins, <laughs> which is kind of like this. Um, well, he was talking about the Berlin Wall and um, kind of in the Fukuyama end of history sense that there's the standstill between capitalism and communism and nothing's ever going to change mm. um until 1989 <laughs> what's anorexic about that uh it's like a it's like a um a vacuous history it's like a, a history emptied out of uh its force oh yeah that is very that's i mean it just must have been what was going around at the time this general feeling of like uh yeah stolid stolidness <laughs> History being stalled, I mean. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Like, I thought you meant like stoic, stalwart. Stalin. Stalin. Stalin, <laughs> Stalin was definitely around then. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about? Baudrillard? Shout out Mystery Helper Professor. Mm-hmm. Who... Yeah. We appreciate. The, uh, yeah, it's giving us content for our podcast, so that's appreciated. We weren't, yeah, what were we were going to talk about before. The the other, this other uh, part that I like is, um, in fact, even inverted the fable, meaning the Borges fable about the yeah. map laid over the territory. The fable is useless. Perhaps only the allegory of the empire remains, for it is with the same imperialism that present day simulators try to make the real, all the real, coincide with their simulation models. Um, which is like where, that's yeah. where simulation like our our current idea of what sim like of simulations and computers running simulations and computers creating models of reality that we can either like play in or run experiments in that's just it's mm -hmm. i mean it comes from a scientific tradition obviously but it also is like heavily a, a military and therefore like imperialist technocratic yeah remember like, war games that was a great movie yeah yeah totally <laughs> it makes me think of it makes me think of that for sure. But I mean, that movie was based on real things that were developed by like uh, John Nash and the CIA in the like in the 50s and 60s as a way to try to model human behavior on mm. like uh, on a geopolitical scale. That was all at the end of the day founded in like schizophrenic, paranoid ideas of of what reality was um just like things like the prisoner's deliverance dilemma um and i'm just going off the uh adam what? curtis uh doc, what, right. is, what is the adam curtis doc, uh tv series that's about this uh not century of the self no not century of the self techno uh, something it's the it was the one about 
Gaddafi, right? No, not that movie either. This right. is the whole. He has a TV series. That's it's the first. Short. Yeah, the first episode is about like how the like a lot of the sort of upper class bourgeois-ish members of Russian society were able to sort of work their way into the bureaucracy uh, of the government and then slowly impose like a technocratic willpower onto the like communist revolution. Right, I well, we'll put one. the link in the show yeah. notes when we come into that, that, yeah, Google. that. So, so anyway, the history of simulations being developed uh, by like ostensibly game designers pretty much uh, in the sixties at working off of the like game theory work of John, Nash, um, who is uh, a beautiful mind with starring yeah. Russell Crowe. Another Crow. great movie. <laughs> um, so Russell Crowe invented this theory. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, that being eventually evolved into computer, the computer games that we know today. It's My favorite of which yeah. being uh, SimCity and, and The Sims, created by uh, Will Wright, who was, um, he was basing, he was, b- basing his ideas about how to simulate a city off of the sort of urban planning books that were the opposite of what Gene Jacobs was talking about, because the whole, the whole purpose of SimCity is you design these zones, commercial, industrial and residential for your city to exist in with like no, um, no mixing. It's completely like segregation complete segregation of uses um his simulation models or way to model the simulation of cities being uh licensed by the cia as one of the people who's like went on to license the software that he developed for the original SimCity in 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 89 i think um and among other people who were like a lot of corporations used his but i his his the technology that he built to simulate to create the SimCity game, which I loved as a child, um, was used by different people for different ends. I think the CIA did it in part to do some like population and riot control s- simulation stuff, but um, the stuff all yeah. come from the military, and it all it seems like a lot of it leads back to the military as well. And statehood, yeah, like statecraft. I I think that uh, the kind of blindness to the cult of novelty surrounding VR, which itself feels kind of like a weird inflation, given that this is like, you guys would know better, but like what generation or what iteration of VR revival is this? It's not even the kind of newfangled technology that it was, it's being talked about in some sense. Yeah. It started off as the first sort of thing you could, or like, Maybe the one of the first iterations of the of VR, if you wanted to be in the broadest sense, was like um, camera obscura, right? Sure, yeah. Like recreating a sort of three sixty reality, and then you have different stereoscopic uh, viewing lenses that come up in the nineteenth century um, as a way to not. They didn't have any head tracking ability, but they did have <laughs> um, the ability to show like three D images. Uh, that were that you had to wear this sort of helmet to to look at, um, like the uh, viewfinders of the like, or what are what are those things called that like my mom had one of those, them as a kid, where yeah, there would be this like a viewfinder, view yeah, oh yeah, with the with slides, a clicky thing on Is that, the side. I think it's a viewmaster. It's got a disc of images. Yeah, you yeah, put yeah, in yeah. It. the red and orange. And then in the eighties and nineties, um, people started experimenting with 
actually building things that we would recognize as VR, where it's uh, some sort of goggles that you wear that are hooked up to a very large computer. And then sometimes there's like power gloves and stuff involved. But mm -hmm. maybe the virtual boy, the Nintendo uh, Nintendo's VR thing was, yeah, one of the early commercial uh, iterations of it. And it was it was like horrible to use. Um, just it could only it was a, all of its graphics were just black background with the red. like red lines and i played it represent. in blockbuster when i was like the yeah <laughs> it was like set up but so there is this notion that it's new which is inflated and that novelty itself is is like somehow meant to be like a selling point of the of of the technology and i think that there's there is like a weird institutional support of it and then like a lot of people in the arts are, seem to be kind of suspicious of it mm -hmm. as a medium worth developing worth investing in and then the uninterrogated part which makes the kind of um uh baudrillard reference from this mystery professor valuable the uninterrogated part of it seems to be that uh, you can approach the reality with it, or you can uh, like, th there's all this talk about the sensory enhancement and the immersive quality. And a lot of it f f feels like what, where? And then that's where the topic of the, of the uh, uh, event that we are attending, which is VR as a empathy generator or empathy machine comes from is that it's basically that it is approaching the real so much that you can um embody other people's experiences walk a mile in their shoes yeah, yeah that you can it's the best to their face. <laughs> mile a walk a mile in shoes machine that humans have ever invented yeah is that's the uh that's the conceit sort of that the whole vr as empathy media comes from um, but which, we found ourselves being kind of like the cynics in the room right. kind of, and kind of like, I mean, the game, we can talk a bit about the game now, but we kind of have resisted the push toward realism. Um, we've kind of like resisted uh, doing flat representation in the video game. Right. Yeah. Aesthetically. Yeah. The, if you're watching uh, the stream, Right now, you'd be seeing um, the the trailer, the like a two D trailer of the VR experience shot from the uh, player's perspective, which shows um, the you have a few figures that are outlined and certainly not um, realistic. More so, looks like a kind of the, just the shaded outline of the body. Um, as in these very like flat plateaus um, levels that uh, the the player can interact with things on these like on these planes, uh, but it's very it's it's all constructed inside of a game engine and intentionally made to not look uh, like it's like it's referencing the the actual people that are uh, the subjects of the interviews. Yeah, it's a series of interviews, mm -hmm. and when when I tell when I'm when I explain it that way to people, it's a VR documentary. That's like a series of interviews. Uh, the, of course, they imagine that it just be a that it would be a 360 video. Yeah, and I think that was a, that's a, like a distinction that wasn't made there. And I think feel like, and this is not to shit talk the day. It was a super fun event, but it's but I feel like it's a 
it's an important distinction to make because it seems like 360 video and again maybe you guys know more than this but it seems like 360 video is getting lumped in with vr in a way that doesn't feel that doesn't make sense yeah it's like i think it's always sort of been mixed in or at least like within this current like vr revival revivalist period uh 360 video is uh synonymous even though of course like they run the you know they're completely different workflows and like they produce a completely different experience but because the the, in the public vernacular they're they share the same uh space in the mind and then also like they can they can run off i mean one can run off more the other's hardware and one can't do not vice versa, but like 360 video is a much, um, is a, it's a much more, uh, accessible version of fully interactive VR. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it, in, in the cases where people are trying to, or, uh, be exposed, exposing others, exposing new audiences to VR, usually using 360 videos, often like a, a route in that it requires like less hardware uh, or l- less expensive hardware. I, I have a sense of what you mean by accessible. Can you expand on that? Just Yeah. Uh, sorry. So ex- when I mean accessible in this case, I'm referring to like the, the uh, hardware that's required to uh, use VR. So initially, like back when uh, we started playing with VR with the developers kits uh, back like in 2015, you needed like a $3,000 to $5,000 computer to run a like what was then like a thousand or $2,000 uh, piece of equipment. And then that was just to run something, not even to create it. Um, but the, then um the 360 video is has been uh, the 360 video uses uh, a camera capturing 360 degrees around um, around the camera, like either through like putting a bunch of bunch of GoPros together or having a bunch of different camera fisheye lenses, lenses. fisheye lenses, yeah. Um, and then you just take that and put it. Uh, you take that and there's. Uh, a process for then making it so that you can just sort of click either click uh, through like a YouTube video, like YouTube even supports this now and Facebook supports 360 videos, or you can put it inside a headset that's made for heavier, uh, more interactive, uh, actual like virtual reality works uh, that, uh, that then you can just sort of passively watch this uh, pre-recorded. And that's a big difference in um, sort of this, I think that's a big difference in the access of notion of, of VR is that a lot of people uh, aren't used to coming to, unless you have a, like a video game background, like you play a lot of games, you're not going to immediately as a consumer of media, like jump into anything. Even when we hand people the controllers um, back at during the event the other day, people aren't really used to, I mean, they're new, they're different kinds of controllers. They're not this this sort of standard like PlayStation uh, controllers that people just like are expected that they're just going to sit in the headset and watch something. And kind of you need to when you're exposing people to the the medium, um, the language of cinema is much more present in their minds. And so passively watching something that you can look around in like a 360 video is a lot easier uh, to, it's a lot, it's it's sort of a more familiar thing to do than to begin to engage and look around and like prod things in the virtual space than like a, which would be a, uh, what you would do in a virtual reality piece. Yeah, 360 video is it because it's just of like a 
video applied to the inside of a sphere basically and then you can look at different parts of the sphere but you can't move around the sphere because it's just a, a it's as if the screen was a, was a sphere yes that's a good abstract way yeah and that sphere is just sort of around your head when you're wearing the the uh go whatever goggles you're looking at it through whereas if you have um vr built in a game engine then it's more so that you are inside of a 3d space with 3d objects and therefore can do um navigation you can move around as well as looking at different things you can interact with different things using the controllers and there's sometimes like this snobbery like when denoting the differences between the the mediums because or the media because like it's not as if we're saying one is superior than the other when we like find the need to differentiate when we're talking about these these things. But one cert like one certainly has a different um, quality of like agency surrounding it because and that's what we are sort True. of exploring with our own project where we're very like we're, where we are building it in a game engine. It's not um, it's not just represent straight representation taken from a 360 camera yeah. um there's a lot of decisions being made both on our part but then also expected to be made on the audiences or the users or the participants part like who uh they they have a role to play in the in the piece itself yeah i guess that's one um kind of ramification of this question of of accessibility thinking about um how uh, we tell stories with, uh, like, I, I was liking how Oya oh yeah, was talking about how they had to establish their idiom even using the 360 cameras. Mm -hmm. And we ourselves have um, this, I was, I compared it to a book the other day, mm -hmm. where with a book, you just can begin um, in media res and expect people to kind of pick it up as it goes along. And then with VR, you have to kind of like build in these user friendly elements or these like um like ux considerations that we that to me kind of clutter it like it's hard to do like a minimal thing with it so i guess with 360 the 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 way that you can kind of like use cinematic conventions to flop them into the the 360 um camera language if you want you can't really have that same expectation with vr mm -hmm. and th in that sense it's like maybe irritatingly emergent <laughs> as, a, as a media the um 360 cameras are more accessible as both for consumers and producers for consumers because anyone you don't need a headset even to look at it but you could you can look at it on your uh, on your browser, on your desktop rather, or on on a phone without a without a headset or a phone with a Google Cardboard, um, and they're also more accessible to producers. Um, so we the the studio that Ben just mentioned, Oya, uh, was they're making a documentary about the um, very very good looking documentary. Uh, I didn't unfortunately wasn't able to see any of the other projects in VR, but we saw their a flat screen. They're flat trailer. Uh, yeah, they're 2D trailer, as yeah. it was referred to. <laughs> uh, and they're making, it's a documentary about the island of Barbuda, which is, uh, seems like this sort of communitarian uh, paradise. So there's, there's six generations um, have um, lived there as a result of a sort of land trust. They're, the people who are indigenous there... Um, were brought there through the transatlantic slave trade. And Not then, the people who are indigenous there, but they they have the there was indigenous people there, but then also people were brought 
um, via the slave okay, trade. And that's okay. where the, that's like, I think, I think at least, and that's what the people who live there now are coming from. Um, and yeah, they have a like communally owned land and stuff, but it was, it, it seems like a sort of, it, or it was presented as a sort of like really nice paradise until it was walled by one of their recent Hurricane Irma, was it yeah. in 2017? The yeah. the global warming storms and then it was beset upon by disaster capitalism. So yeah. um, they were, they're coming from documentary filmmaking place and this is their first uh uh, a 360 video and they they were despite the fact that it is it is more um accessible now as a medium 360 videos to producers because you just need a camera you don't have to do it in a, a game engine like we use for our projects um but still they have to invent new languages it's wild how how much cinema is just framing things and then right. the i the the thing the one the thing that is really pretty uh pretty rupturous about a 360 video versus previous technology or or the previous medium of cinema is that there is no frame in it that you can't do framing as a director which is what all the people who are director film directors who go into 360 video remark upon and uh the oh oh yeah a filmmaker was uh just mentioning um how she had to sort of set press record on the camera and then run out of frame and hide somewhere else. But how that produced <laughs> another like outside of the room that she was outside filming the in, yeah. Yeah. and then how that produced interesting results because it became a more sort of intimate uh, view of Fly this of the, the subject mm-hmm. because there's no film crew there. Yeah. There is no yeah, just a camera and the man, the subject alone. Which that as so that's another aspect of it in which it is sort of like purporting a, a closer. That's probably the 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 way that it is approximating reality that I find more interesting but than representationally. Sure, but it's still just a like Warhol. I like this line from Warhol where he's like the most intimate. Uh, the phone is the most intimate form of communication, and it is because the uh, podcast is the most intimate form of communication. That's true. I think we should deliver. Do ASMR. <laughs> no, don't do. No, no, talk normal. Hi. <laughs> I, yeah, let's Babe, just... sexy baby voices. <laughs> yeah. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Warhol. <laughs> anyway, and then I, so it is a species of intimacy, as it is in in the tent when they're by. The, but you still, there's an awareness that you're, and I, and I don't know. There's an awareness of the film crew. There's an awareness of the process of editing, and that there's a final audience mm-hmm. for this, even if it's an abstract thing. I, I do wonder. I do wonder if there is like this space of vulnerability produced in approaching a new medium that might offer it certain advantages in terms of affect. But I didn't like the shorthand that was happening. I reckon at the event, the yeah, shorthand, the shorthand that, was happening, that was happening at the, at the event. event where it was kind of like, oh, this is clearly like a way to reach into people's soul. That's mm-hmm. like distinct from a song or a poem or something like that, like that there was some, there was just this cult of the new thing that was happening that I thought was pretty uninterrogated. Say the thing you said about the Lumiere brothers train film. Well, this is it. Yeah. So the, so the Lumieres, when they first presented the film of the train uh, barreling down on the camera, everybody ran out of the cinema. And then when people learned the idiom of the of of cinema, this, maybe that's what what's his face here means by the the charm of abstraction somehow, 
that or Wait, the, yeah. uh like that it has there is the simula <laughs> <laughs> the simulacra can be mistake mistaken for reality and then when there it's in when there is no reality no nah, I've lost this one that happened to me earlier when we were talking about when I was talking about accessibility and then I, and then I was like, what was I going to say? Uh, <laughs> oh, I can't edit this out. I have to think of the thing right now. But I, I did a, I have a soft shoeing technique from teaching. <laughs> <laughs> it's like playing. I just use Baudrillard. I just say anorexic words. <laughs> like people back on the back of a set who say mash banana, mash banana to make it look like they're talking. <laughs> Desert of the real. I believe it was Judith Butler who said. <laughs> I, um, it makes just this process of, of losing your train of thought is like a platformer video game or something when all of a sudden you jump and then there's no platform there to land on. And just <laughs> this is the abstractions charm of the podcast medium where you just, uh, where you lose your train of thought and it becomes very vulnerable and it becomes very the empathy intimate. machine. But the, the, what, <laughs> this is the I wanted to bring up Mario as super Mario or like I said platformer. So platformer links to super Mario. I wanted to bring up super Mario because the sort of classic way to describe what game good game design is, is how in super Mario, um, that it has to teach you a game has to teach you how to play it, which is exactly Ben, what you were saying. Books right. don't have to do books. Don't have to teach you how to understand the literary medium, but, um, uh, super Mario first, uh, you uh, are in the first NES Super Mario. You're just a Mario on, on the screen, and then it, the first sort of screen that you're on, you can. There's no no obstacles. You can just move. You realize that this button is move. This button is jump. A Goomba comes pretty quick. Well, then the yeah, next like, screen like over, you see a, you see then. a Goomba, yeah. but you've probably just jumped jumped for the first time. So you either jump over him or jump on him, and it's fine. Yeah. Then. Uh, the next sort of screen is uh, will be a, a pit and uh, it's fine. You know how to jump. So you jump over the pit. But then after that, you're encountered with the first real uh, gameplay puzzle, which is a pit with a Goomba. Right. And so you have to do some thinking based on what you just learned to overcome this problem. Um, and that's, that's just like basically like how you should do game design as, as in the like Mario Shigeru Miyamoto way. Um, and sort of what we were trying to do with our, with our VR uh, documentary as well, or like that's the logic we were thinking of it in. Um, but because the meat, I guess because the medium is more complicated than just the Mario on the screen, or at least our design is more complicated. There's a lot of buttons Harder. on the controllers yeah, that aren't like it's the controllers themselves. And this reaches back to the note on accessibility um, that of course we have to visit the fact that the VR headsets were designed by white men and very much are supposed to sit sit on a very particular body um that's like an able-bodied white man with like a crew cut hair or something not even a white man with dreadlocks either <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not even a canceled white man um and so you have like w when you're um putting these controllers in people's hands sometimes their hands aren't big enough to actually reach all like they True. once you like move their hands once you physically move the hand on the person and kind of like invade their privacy um they then you can like show them okay these are what you, the buttons that you press but there's no um bec yeah once you've like put the headset on a person what 
depending on how well that fits, uh, then they're kind of cut off from the reality of what their hands are doing. And then the hands are still sort of paradoxically um, like the, are the controllers, even though you're able to like m- physically move. Um, like I'd like to see a bit, a bit more in VR where like just the movement is is where the controls are. But currently you still have to uh, like press A. That's what we have in. in yeah. uh, and we didn't really intend to do this. It just ended up has ended up being the easiest thing to do. But in our documentary, you don't have to press any buttons. You just mm-hmm. have to move in space physically. Um, mm-hmm. The. Because that's enough of a challenge for people who are just like entering VR. And not that we'll be showing uh, the piece always for people who are new to VR, but it's like there is still this challenge. Well, there's a question of intention as well, because Mm -hmm. the part like uh, perhaps a centerpiece or a big part, not a centerpiece, a big part of the uh, of the piece is these interviews. And if you have people uh, wrangling the tech or thinking too much about how they interact with the space or the platform or whatever, it kind of takes away from the interviews. It like, I guess part of the idea of doing it was to be like, is there a way to put these interviews in a more engaging context? And if the engagement becomes a diversion from the subject, then it, but maybe we should talk about the game, what like what is going on in the game in a more specific way. Let's do that during the playthrough. Great. Yeah. Um, One thing I was going to say about that, just uh, on what Kat was saying about setting up people in VR it's the one of the the most interesting sort of like lines of questioning at the event we were at the yeah. other day was about how because <laughs> Kat, Kat fist pumps <laughs> Kat's, Kat's question is really good um, let's repeat that again can we take a can moment can you repeat it really close moment, <laughs> my wow, question Kat's question was really um, good the that so there's when you are installing vr hold up let me explain it okay conference or can you not mansplain cat's question john it's my job (laughs) Um, i don't see a ring on it (laughs) is when you are showing vr in a public setting you need to have a uh an, an assistant or a docent there to do the um, setting up on the body. And so basically what I- Consensually. Consent, well, yes. Assumedly the person has approached you and said, okay, I want to use the VR thing. Then you immediately have to conduct phrenology on their head, (laughs) measuring their skull size with the straps of the VR headset, um, which is like, everyone does have very different skulls. I just want to, like some people have really big heads. My head's really big. And then some people- Well, this is what you know, this is what you're talking about with different hair. Like it just doesn't, some people can't do it. Yeah. Hair makes a huge difference. Some, and it, the people yeah. with glasses, yeah, mm. glasses sometimes disqualify you from using at least the uh, older model, the Oculus Rift. I have we have an Oculus Quest as well, which I found fits bigger glasses. So obviously, more because, fashionable glasses size for twenty nineteen, <laughs> the twenty nineteen glasses. Because Oculus has got mad, fa- it's like all Facebook's money, and they're probably pouring their all into this so they can like craft our. Per, virtual purgatories of the future um, uh, that's becoming a bit more accessible in terms of being able to fit slightly bigger glasses, but that's about it. Why don't they want to play our piece in the purgatories of the futures? Well, what? that started, that was the other line in the, in the event is like, as wait, did we get you to didn't finish point? my good question? Or, oh, okay. So I'm going to take over yeah, yeah. from here. So the, <laughs> something that came up in, yeah. What well, 
in the discussion uh, at VR of as empathy machine, uh, one important thing uh, that was raised was that sort of intimacy of the person who is uh, helping someone put the VR on uh, the headset, the equipment rather. And then um, there's because when people are, are positing that like, oh, VR is, is, is this thing that can produce empathy, there's then like that this question of responsibility from the audience or that was what was kind of being uh, was pre- the, uh, preceding this line of questioning was like, uh, are, if, if you're going to make someone cry inside of a headset, um, like are like where what what it does the role of the artist does the artist have some sort of responsibility if VR is such an empathy machine then like can we mm. uh, are we responsible for like the kind of trauma that we might put an audience through and then um, my what I raised was then the person who is often uh, like facilitating the VR uh, the VR experience for the audience is often like a, a minimum wage or unpaid volunteer. Uh, at a gallery if it is seen in a gallery or like festival context and it has like no uh, you know potentially no training in like what do you do if the person that you just set up uh in this vr uh headset just comes out of it crying or uh in our case like we've had people like uh experience like very um what would you call it uh, dissociation. dissociation from uh trying vr for the first time and uh and and sort of like not only um like what there's the there's the responsibility of the creators of course when you're like when you're thinking about like what you're making but then also you're forcing most of this uh kind of like real this the i maybe air quotes real work on like the person who is this gallery attendant who you are just sort of off uh, offloading the work to, uh, to both like connect physically with this person by touching them. Um, the person who like your audience, they are like your, um, avatar in a way, but they also are usually like not getting paid, remunerated or like what, what are the, what is the position that you're putting those people in as well? It's not just your audience. Cause I, yeah. I was exhausted yesterday. Yeah. Oh yeah. And Cause we, we just did that. We just did that for half a day. Yeah. It was like, Yesterday we missed everyone's birthday parties, including Ben, <laughs> um, because we just had forgotten everything after that, after doing that event <laughs> for I eight did, hours. So tiring doing phrenology all day. <laughs> <laughs> I, on, the, on the subject of zingers, though, I did like what John, what John, we went up and talked about our VR project and John was like, well, the only thing we know for sure about VR is that it produces dissociation. <laughs> Clinically, yeah, that's the only proven thing. But yeah, our top priority, therefore, should be unionizing the VR attendants at art galleries. <laughs> yeah, or, or like taking it in as part of the, like like accepting that performance as a part of the VR experience in a way that it isn't for, say, recorded music or cinema. Like, like since there is this human interactive element, unless you put it on a platform like Steam or something like that, like, I don't... Yeah. Well, then you're like getting that's a relationship with people who uh, assumedly already have the headset and are, have the like the, sort of that vocabulary to access it to which. Because VR is not accessible. That's, no. That's, it's, it's like you, we're lucky that you guys have got these two sets and everything. Yeah, like for that free. And, and, <laughs> but it's like it's not accessible. I stole them from Best Buy. You um, did not steal them yeah, from don't, Best Buy. Don't um, steal the, the stolen stolen valor of I'm stealing. That. <laughs> stolen valor of stealing. <laughs> stolen stealing valor. 
should we should we do yeah, the playthrough? Good time for a playthrough. Yeah. Pee break playthrough. I'll, uh, do the, I'll do get... the theme music because I haven't written it yet. So one of the things that we hope to do with this podcast is to have our um, cheap, cultural, critical hot takes. And so um, we were talking about the distinction between VR and 360 video. And um, the cultural criticism of VR, of course, is that it um, submerges you into this isolate, alienated world where only you exist and all of your interactions have meaning and um, you're kind of like the literal center of the universe. And then 360 video is the other neoliberal truth of having infinite choice. You know, you can look wherever you want, but then as Kat points out, it's, it's the illusion of choice as opposed to choice itself so there we've ticked that box of uh cultural criticism uh cheap hot take cultural criticism so we're in uh we're doing our playthrough now we got august um playing that was who was coughing earlier they have a terrible cold because ben's ben's too cheap to turn on the heat in here it's freezing and to pay for medicine (laughs) and pay for medicine it's getting pretty dickensian up in here (laughs) Well, if the people we did art for would pay us, then <laughs> maybe we could. Our, little chi- Timmy, our children wouldn't be dying of tuberculosis. <laughs> little Timmy wouldn't be dying of goddamn TB <laughs> in downtown Toronto. <laughs> I think it's the Spanish flu, actually. Yeah, the Spanish flu. And we didn't even get to go to Spain. Um, okay. Well, there we go. So so our, our friend Augie is doing a playthrough of resource right now. And Augie's actually sort of... Augie has been... Um, He's been testing. He's Augie has been performing this uh, this VR piece for us since the beginning. <laughs> it's true, unpaid uh, child labor. <laughs> um, the first opening in 2017 at Mayworks, Augie and Roman were the activators. The, yeah, they were sort of doing the choreography of it, which is beautiful. Um, do you? So in resourced, um, it's a like we mentioned before it's a series of interviews and each interview has a different level um when we did the interviews originally who uh who were the interviews with ben so the so resource is based on interviews with uh kathy crow and roxy danielson they're both street nurses so kathy crow kind of is a pioneer of street nursing um a dominant theme of the frontline work is um the worker um, leaves the institution and goes into public spaces, goes into homes. Uh, the, the, you'll hear the expression, meet people where they're at. So in Kathy's case, uh, she meets people in the street and ministers to them in that way. Um, and in an institutional context, and, and, her, and Roxy was kind of her protege. Um, then we interviewed Stephanie Archambault, who works with street and drug-involved mothers in um, the Jane and Finch area, or did at the time. Uh, and she's a social worker. Uh, we interviewed Monica Forrester, who um, uh, works at uh, Maggie's and is the indigenous coordinator there. Uh, Maggie's is a sex worker advocacy 
program. Um, and they offer a range of services um, around health and housing and best practices and support. Uh, and then Lee Chapman, who is a registered nurse. Um, she's been an activist in the fentanyl crisis, and she helped start the safe injection site illegally at the time. Uh, so punk. So punk. Very And very kind of like early union. If we don't like the laws, we break them until they're better laws. Um, and she started the safe injection site at Moss Park with friends and colleagues. And so the interviews um, talk about the work that these different frontline workers do uh, and uh, kind of like their experience of it and then talk about the people that they're serving and, and, and the, um, their interpretation of the experience that those people are having. And then we think about that through the lens of policy and budget and kind of like the technocratic and bureaucratic um, uh, issues that impact uh, the sort of work that they're trying to do. Um, and we wanted to, we conducted these interviews in 2018. Um, and when we conducted the interviews, uh, we took with us our Xbox Connect, which is a um, an accessory for the Xbox 360. It's very old now. It's like 10 years old. Um, that you can use for 3D scanning. Um, and so... We use it to create 3D scans of the interviewees' uh, bodies, and it, uh, the the our 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 fellow VR studio at the panel we were just on. They also do f- photogrammetry and scanning, but hilariously with the most expensive equipment Cutting that edge. you can get. And then we have this like ten year old dirt equipment um, that therefore necessitates like was part of the reason why it necessitated a more abstract uh, aesthetic in the game that we totally. ended up making. We created th- these scans of the participants' bodies. And then in VR, we use the uh, spatial information from the headset and the controllers of the Oculus uh, headset that we're using um, to map the user's movement on with the uh, the 3D scans of the interviewees' bodies. Um, and then that's pr- that sort of forms the the uh, core mechanics of our game or of the documentary. And then you go through these different levels, not only moving yourself around in space, but you're also moving the uh, bodies that are mimicking or mirroring your movement around in space. Those bodies being the the scanned image of mm-hmm. the people who we interviewed. Mm-hmm. Maybe, Kat, you can talk a bit about aesthetic as we kind of watch Augie play through the levels. Yeah, um, you're missing, if you're just listening to the podcast right now, you're missing the visual component, which uh, includes Ben's child, Augie, playing uh, the the sort of the walkthrough of the demo of the game. Uh, and that in, in that there's a lot of, in the actual imagery that is present in the game, you have a lot of, uh, the background's often just a flat color. Uh, you have really um, sort of simple uh, representations of like hand outline, hands for your VR controllers that are uh, in, in a, a, a platform. As I mentioned earlier, your, each level sort of, uh, you kind of traversed various platforms that um, are populated by the 
the uh, 3D scans of people. And again, these scans are very rough in the sense that they're kind of blocky outlines of, of human forms, but certainly not uh, indicative of any like individual uh, facial characteristics or and sometimes not even indicative of like body forms. But uh, <laughs> uh, the, the the sort of decision with that was to b- both like a budget thing, what with we had uh, working with what we had uh, as far as like what the Xbox Connect uh, could actually translate into a 3D model um, and how much time we initially had to develop this. Uh, I came onto the project after its initial demo demo at the Mayworks 2018 festival. We spent... Um, Mayworks is a labor arts festival in Toronto. Mm-hmm, which- Shout out Carol Conde, Carl um, Beverage for inventing that for bringing that about it's well, a really good invention my the, favorite invention in i like the telephone light bulb pretty hot as well but uh so th- that <laughs> that's what uh resource began as a um a, an installation for that and in it and that version there was a much more bare bones sort of vr very version. punky there was no real there's no interaction at that point i think besides mirroring besides the 3d scan bodies mirroring mm-hmm. your movement and uh, as I came on the project, um, we all uh, we all began to sort of decide what, how we would like uh, these the the interviews to be visually represented. So in when on on Thursday during the event, we we often use the phrase like interactive metaphor as a way of describing the gameplay where you're engaging in. The le- the level let's call it a level because it's like using a video game uh, engine. You're engaging in the level and you hear the audio play of the interview and there's things that are going on um, that are directly um, there's the the things that are happening interactively. Like what's what is for, what sort of things are for popping instance, up? This level, yeah, um, is an interview with Stephanie Archambault, and as she talks about not only sort of helping people who are experiencing trauma, but also vicariously dealing with that trauma herself, the whole time water is just slowly raising and eventually engulfing you. Um, that's sort of our ex- an example of what we are sort of thinking of as the like interactive metaphors. And then the, yeah, it's the idea of like staying afloat, I guess, being something that you voice during the interview. And keeping your head above the water. Yeah, keeping your head above and the water. Literally what Augie's <laughs> doing very well right now. Oh, no, going under. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, buddy. No. Uh, so that's, that's the... Uh, that's a way where we're trying to make the user feel like they're there you know there's something to do there's a very there's a real like uh relationship between like what the user is doing and what they are hearing as opposed to just uh not just because like 360 videos as we see can be very powerful or as we saw during the event but um there's as people who are like formally in, in, interested in like what the VR medium can do we're trying to push uh, push those connections and push what does it mean when uh, or what can you how, how does it change the content or the experience when you can uh, actively do something in the world where you're hearing these these stories being told I think Kathy had a good question that 
because we, we talk about kind of the motivation for the project and we talk about the aesthetic of the project and then Kathy Crow was actually able to show up at the event. Kathy Crow was one of the people we interviewed and she was kind of the first level that we chose because in her interview she had that great what what's the Oh yeah. So charity is vertical and solidarity is horizontal. Which has see this is like this is like anorexic ruins or technolinguistic structures. It's kind of like one of these very evocative uh, ways of putting something so it sticks in your head and and her question was like okay so we make these VR experiences that have like an explicitly political cant to them and then what happens what do they do and I and I thought that was a really fair question I didn't have an answer for it no no that's like the most existential question mm-hmm. well that's I mean that's the question of are you make like if you make political art capital P A political art what are you yeah what is that what are you doing? And we kind of are guilty of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, every time I write a grant application, it's like, what are the, what are the, what, how would you describe this? Come back here, Og. Augie, don't walk so far away. You're going to pull down our whole setup. Augie is testing the limits of VR right yeah, now. Yeah, Augie's definitely the way. best user I've ever seen of VR. Or Yeah, for sure. I'm glad that we've had the luck to have Augie's performances in our <laughs> VR game multiple times now. It's very nice. Um, but yeah, we are explicitly kind of like trying to do political art. But I think that we also have like, if we're not cynical, we have very conservative expectations about what can be done with that i think yeah indeed um because yeah like we said before we're not particularly um enthusiastic about its ability to engender empathy in others or make it actually feel like you've walked a mile in another another uh soul's shoes um as if that was a guarantee of anything as if yeah uh we uh, the the question of what it does though like why is sort of the question of why even make political art but then maybe even more specifically why do we think vr is a good context to create political art in and the best we can sort of answer is like as a sort of propaganda for the for the uh, things that we think deserve propagandizing yeah i I was listening to um the the new york times podcast and they're talking about the me too movement and talking about um, uh, Weinstein, and then a kind of trajectory where Weinstein inter- like is the is the flashpoint for the Me Too movement, and then uh, Brett Kavanaugh, like either breaking its back or frustrating it dramatically, and then one of the reporters comes to the conclusion that um, it doesn't have like it might be shifting political discourse, but the people who are in power. Um, the lawmakers and the politicians continue to exert the same inf- the, the same influence that they have done. They haven't absorbed whatever message whatever message the uh, Me Too had to offer. Would you say it was a simulacra of progress? Uh, that's maybe I would say that. Maybe I would say that. And so I do think that um, discourse functions. Um, by accretion and it can kind of have its toxic or leeching effect but I, I, I don't think that there's a tangible way to measure the impact of it. I guess with the sorrows of young Werther right by Goethe there was a marked uptick in suicides mm-hmm. again dissociation the only thing that art can cause <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then we'll see when the Joker movie comes out. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> the sorrows of young Joker. Yeah. Uh, but it's it, already out, so maybe there's some. Li let's live stream watching that. No, <laughs> we met the Joker. Oh yeah, that's. Good. Oh yeah, that was the other thing that happened. It we got very chaotic. Experiencing some real chaos energy outside of Ryerson. <laughs> we are having a chat with the people we were on the panel with, and all of a sudden, like a badly dressed Joker appeared in our conversation circle, He's eyeballing us in this kind of like jejune performative As gesture. They were being filmed by their like accompanying filmmaker. Confer. Yeah, it it the makeup wasn't on point at all. I just didn't like the invasion of my personal space. By a promotional, uh, like, costume character. That's true. I don't yeah. think they were actually promotional. They're, no, but it was too that's cheap worse, to though. They were just doing, like, grassroots promotion for the DCU. <laughs> They're self-owning. Um, so in wrapping this up, maybe, like, one of the last things that is go interesting going off the question of what does it do? What does political art do? What is the end of it? Um, the Also the question of like the politics of this art artworks specifically, um, it just in terms of like telling stories, telling stories that aren't your own also, um, telling like telling other people's stories and how to involve other people when you're telling their stories. Because that was my hot take. Yeah, it's a good my, one. My hot take, well, not what you're saying, like, but no, I'd say you're, that. You're, yours is good. You like my hot take? I'll, yeah, totally. I can I, see. This is a very affirmative group. Yeah. <laughs> um, was basically like that the, what is consistent with all of the work that was represented at this conference was that it's narrative that is the technology that is sharing empathy as opposed to the the vr uh media medium itself um it's the oldest technology <laughs> i need a knife and i need narrative <laughs> we should we should do that we should make a song and yeah, call it's pretty it pretty good um before forks there were only knives Kinda well like that. think about that um, Kat, do you have anything to say on that of like the specific poli politics of the work itself, telling people stories, being artists who tell other, like telling other people's stories? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, I guess I see us going up against like making work, this, this particular work in VR was just producing something that's a, a little bit different than what else is available uh, in VR at, at this moment. And that's not necessarily the, so that's not really the reason why it's being produced, but it's uh, as like, as we continue to show it to people and uh, expose people, either expose people to VR or expose a new kind of VR experience to people. Um, yeah, I find it like a continue it, it able to continue my interest as a as a collaborator on the project. Um, it, yeah, it was interesting. The they at, when people were asking, "What do you do? What does what will what will VR do?" That sort of looped into a question about how will we can we see it as a as a learn as a tool of learning or a tool of education? And that's I guess that was I was just sort of sitting in my thoughts about that as uh, as as a technology of of Facebook as if it enters the classroom, <laughs> what the consequences will that be of uh, if if people do believe it can have so much more uh, 
uh, or if people think that it, it is some sort of empathy machine, if it'll replace a, the if it will replace a human teacher, it's very a very scary consideration. If you look at all the other uh, cuts that the well, specifically the Ontario school system has been um, experiencing. And it's just putting technolo- more technology between students. It's so funny. It's it's such a trip to think about the emphasis on presence and reality in it when it feels like the, the, there's all I can see is the technology and the and the financial constraints and mm-hmm. the and even just like the basic um, perceived obsolescence <laughs> that happens with this uh, medium that to me makes it anything but present yeah Yeah. this is the fourth generation of device that has come up since i started working with vr in like 2016 um so we've kept poor augie quits augie's on strike i I don't i think augie is operating as if there are child labor regulations in this apartment (laughs) little Um, did he know uh but um that, I think that ends our playthrough. Let's if, do plugs. If you would also like to play through the uh, the VR documentary resource that we made, you can come to uh, Toronto Media Arts Centre uh, this Thursday evening when we will be there, or you can also go Friday, Saturday, and maybe Sunday for Rendezvous with Madness. Uh, that's the Workman Arts uh, art festival and there will be a, a number of different works there and ours will be one of them um, and you can uh, play it just as Augie was playing it so well here with us and there are still places of there's still spots available at the Brandscape if people are looking to rent um, private semi-private and co-working spaces anything else to plug yeah the uh, so um you are able to uh, follow the podcast now on um, SoundCloud. Uh, the, it's available at soundcloud.com slash art dash work dash play. It'll also shortly be available on Apple iTunes. Now it is. Now it is. It is. Jonathan got the uh, notification that it is available on Apple iTunes, which means you can use the wonderful Apple podcast app to find us as well. Um, you can, uh, follow the studio at Twitter at Speckwork, on Facebook at Speckwork, and on Instagram at Speckwork as well. If you want to be notified of the Twitch stream, um, follow us on Twitch at Speckwork. Okay. So long, sweet universe. Farewell. Bye. Fartwork Play.